Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Today, we learn how diet, genetics, and epigenetics interact with each other to impact our health and longevity, and how to use this information to design personalized lifestyle interventions. Dr. Lucia Aronica received her PhD from the University of Vienna and has research experience from the University of Oxford, University of Southern California, and University Federico II of Naples. She is a lecturer at the Stanford Prevention and Research Center. She is Genomics Lead at Metagenetics, Inc., and is the editor of the peer-reviewed journal Life by MDPI. Before I begin, I would also like to mention that this show is separate from my teaching and research roles at the medical school, which, which I'm currently affiliated. It is, however, part of my continuing effort to bring quality, evidence-based information about health and longevity to the general public. Now, enjoy this interview with Lucia Aronica. Dr. Lucia Aronica, welcome to Health Longevity Secrets. Thank you for having me, Rob. It's my pleasure. It's so great to have you on the show. And before we, we dive into the fascinating work that you're doing, maybe you could tell us uh, first a little bit about how you came to be so interested in this field. Yes. So I've been uh, in the field of epigenetics for more than 15 years. Um, at the beginning, I became interested in, uh, in genomics in general. Uh, and that's because um, in uh, the year 2000, when I started my master's studies, uh, the human, human genome was sequenced. And uh, I, I thought that um, was an opportunity for the whole field of, uh, of medicine to uncover new secrets about our biology and how we can use these secrets to help people live a, a healthier, longer life. And so I started, I, I actually, I switch career very early in life because I, I did, um, I studied uh, um, uh, um, ancient Greek, uh, Latin literature, poetry during my high school. There is a, a, a high school called Liceo Classico in Italy where I'm from. And uh, I was in love just with humanities and humanistic studies. I never thought I would venture into science. And, uh, but that event, I am also a curious uh, animal. So I thought, hmm, perhaps I will give it a try. Let's venture into something new. And uh, I will never regret that. It's, it's been a lovely journey. So I first became interested in, uh, in the field of genomics. And then after completing my master's studies uh, in Italy, Naples, I moved to Vienna, where I um, again ventured in a, in a new field of genomics, epigenetics. Um, uh, and uh, um, and I, I started to, um, to work on one of the many epigenetic uh, modifications. Uh, at that time, it was a small RNAs. And uh, probably your, your audience is uh, aware of what epigenetic is. But Maybe I you could 
take a moment, if you don't mind, yeah. and, and differentiate genomics versus epigenetics and also the three uh, modifications, three main modifications in epigenetics would be great. Yes, happy to do that because uh, I was so lucky to be able to work on uh, each of those three modifications. So let's break it down uh, and make complex, easy to understand. Um, so um, uh, genetics um, uh, describes, um, uh, um, it refers particularly to the sequence of uh, the DNA inside our cells that provides instructions to make the protein uh, they make up our cells and, uh, and, uh, uh, and also produce enzymes uh, that catalyze uh, important biochemical reactions in our body. And, uh, uh, and then the epi, the Greek uh, prefix epi, means on the top. So on the top of our genes, um, uh, we can find uh, uh, molecular tags called epigenetic marks that, that uh, modulate the activity of those genes, meaning whether they are turning, uh, turned on or off. And, uh, um, and this has uh, remarkable consequences uh, in the way we um, uh, look and perform um, at, the, at the cell level and also at the system level, um, uh, uh, so the entire organism. For example, we have the same DNA, the same genetics in every single cell of our body, and yet we can see that um, the cell of my Hair look different from the cell uh, of my eyes, and the reasons for that is that is that uh, my hair uh, cells have a different epigenetics, so they are using some genes, turning on some genes and turning off some other genes, whereas uh, um, uh, uh, different genes are turned on or off in my eyes. Uh, uh, and so this is one of the many examples of how epigenetics can modify the expression of genotype, the genetics, into phenotypes we can perform. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and so that's, uh, of course, a fascinating field. And that's, it has also uh, many implications in uh, in uh, health and disease, and we now understand now that most of uh, of uh, the, um, the diseases we know uh, are have actually an epigenetic component rather than a genetic one, and even things like um, uh, uh, improving health after an, a lifestyle intervention. We are not going to change our genetics after. Uh, initiating a, a new diet or a new training program. What happens is that many genes are turned on or off, and those genes are responsible of the good effects of building muscles or losing weight that we see when we go on a lifestyle intervention. So the epigenetics is basically the, uh, the um, another phase of genetics, the flexible side of genetics that allows um, uh, the environment or our lifestyle to be turned into biology and, uh, and affect, yes, the, the way we, uh, we, we look, perform, and whether we are sick or healthy. So 
uh, I was uh, I was very excited uh, to be so lucky to um, start my PhD um, in uh, uh, 2006 when the um, the Nobel Prize for uh, RNA interference was. Uh, um, awarded. So RNA interference uh, is one of the many mechanisms of epigenetics. Um, so epigenetic modifications uh, include small RNAs that mediate this phenomenon of uh, RNA interference, and then uh, there are histone modifications and DNA methylation. So in order to understand these three uh, modifications, let's uh, first understand how epigenetic works at the molecular level. So uh, uh, genes can be turned on or off by opening or closing the chromatin. The chromatin is uh, um, the, the, the DNA plus histones. Histones are proteins that are positively charged and help the DNA um, become very compact in our cells. The DNA is negatively charged, the histones are positively charged, they complex together into chromatin, they mix the chromosomes, and so this makes the DNA very compact. The DNA couldn't fit in our cells. It's a, more than two uh, meter long, six feet, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's fitting the nucleus, which is very small, um, a few microns. It's like fitting a, a 20 uh, ki the kilometer long uh, 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 string into a ping pong ball. So histones and, uh, and uh, DNA are, are, are compacted in the cell nucleus, but in this way, we can't read the genes. We can't use the genes. The genes are off. So in order to, to turn the genes on, you need to open that. And that's the job of epigenetic modifications. So oh. histone modifications are modifications on the histones, right? So you can, uh, you can modify the histones with different um, epigenetic modifications. Methylation is very common, is very uh, popular, but there are so many other modifications. There is acetylation, for phosphorylation of histones. And when you modify the histones, you change the uh, electric charge of the histones, and so the, uh, you can affect the way that the DNA is complex. This is one way. On the other side, these histone modifications also act as a, fla a flag that recruits other proteins in the cells, machineries that can open and close the chromatin. So it's a, it's a, the, the, they work uh, with, with many functions. On one, on, on one hand, they modified, modified the electric charge around the DNA. On the other hand, they recruit protein. So these are histone modifications, modifications of the histones. And then there is DNA methylation, which uh, is uh, the methylation, so it's only uh, the modification is a methyl group, CH3, that is, uh, is uh, um, added uh, to the DNA itself, and specifically to cytosines, one of the letters of the DNA, that um, are located within CG 
dinucleotides in our DNA. And these are called CPG sites. P stands for the phosphoryl group between the two nucleotides. So we are we are going through some jargon, but it it will be useful in uh, to understand and uh, what we are going to address later. Oh, that, and Oh, yeah, oh, the small just RNA, one, just, uh, just a small one. RNA that oh, are more yeah. complicated. Yeah. Uh, I will not go into detail. I started my PhD like that and are fascinating. But why small RNAs are fascinating? Because they are a sort of mobile epigenetic modifications. They target, they help target either histone modifications or DNA methylation where they need to be in the right place at the right time. And because why they're mobile? Because small RNAs are synthesizing the nucleus and then shuttle in the, in the, in the cytoplasm. And during my PhD, I was uh, um, uh, characterizing how this uh, small RNA works uh, in tetrahamena thermophila, which is a protist uh, that became famous actually because uh, um, the uh, telomerase and telomeres, uh, so uh, the working of telomeres was first characterized in tetrahamena thermophila. It's a beautiful model system to work to study epigenetics. So, so this is fascinating. So it's almost as if the, the is it correct to say the genetics we is, uh, is information that we got from our parents and our ancestors, whereas the epigenetics is experience that is a result of our lifetime experiences and our lifestyle choices and all things that happen to us in our life. Is that a correct way of, of looking at it? It's correct and beautiful. For me, uh, it's, uh, we, we, we know uh, and we intuitively know that we are what we do. We are what we eat and we are what, what we do. But now with the field of epigenetics shows that actually this, this information becomes biology and the genes can learn from uh, this information, remember and store good memories and bad memories of what we do. Yeah, and it seems like you have a unique experience in that you've worked both with the small RNA at one point in your career, and then you worked with histone modification, I think, after that. During my PhD, yes, yeah. yes. And, then and at now that time, I was, I, went, um, I was studying, then I moved to Oxford, England, and I was studying the role of histone modifications in uh, DNA damage and cancer. There is actually a link of how our... DNA uh, between genetics and epigenetics in many levels. And one of these is that when our DNA gets damaged, which is associated with cancer, this affects our epigenetics. And on the other hand, if we have some problems with epigenetics, this makes us more prone to have DNA damage. And uh, David Sinclair is also is, um, is doing some work on this link, which I, I, I think is very exciting. And I identified at the time one gene um, in uh, working with yeast uh, cells that actually this gene, we also have these genes and is mediating this connection in the in, uh, in yeast cells. And this gene is mutated in many cancers in humans. And then finally, I... I uh, uh, now I'm studying DNA methylation, the term modification at Stanford. Finally, uh, being able to um, marry 
my interest uh, for molecular biology and epigenetics, with my interest for uh, lifestyle medicine. I myself, uh, health nut. <laughs> I am, uh, I, um, during my PhD, I, I also did an experiment in my own kitchen. So being an Italian, I, I, I was born and raised eating a typical Italian um, diet made of the three P's, pasta, pizza, and pane, which means bread. And so I was, and, and I was actually feeding fats, dietary fats, because I think this is a little common, especially among women who want to be lean. So um, I was overall healthy, uh, but as I mentioned, I'm also very curious. So when I, when I started my PhD, um, I tried um, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, switch, change diet because I read a book a book by um, uh, Gary uh, Taubes, Good Calories and Bad Calories. And this book was a, an in-depth review uh, of the science of uh, fats and carbohydrates. And uh, the book was arguing that actually eating a, a higher fat diet with healthy fat and lowering uh, your carbohydrates may help you improve your blood lipids and metabolism. Anyway, I tried that. I was just amazed when I took my first blood test after two, three months of being on a diet. So my triglycerides went down threefold and my HDL went up threefold. And for me, it was, uh, I, I was just curious to understand why. And this was in 2007 when Professor Christopher Gardner at Stanford University had published a study in 350 women showing the same thing. These women were randomized to different diets with, uh, with different uh, content of uh, carbohydrates and fats. Uh, this study was the A to Z study because they tested four, four, uh, four diets from the Atkins to the orange learn and zone. Anyway, I uh, when I was doing this experiment in my own kitchen, I realized that there was a study in men in uh, Stanford showing the same benefits of a high high fat low carb diet in women, and I had this dream to look at what happens at the epigenetics. When you go on a low carbohydrate diet, and uh, um, and so I, when I was finishing my postdoc in Oxford, I remember that night. It was late, and I, 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 I must confess, this is my weakest link. I am up late at night, but sometimes that's useful because that night I decided to write an email to Professor Christopher Gardner and just spontaneously. Tell him, look, I I know that you are planning a follow-up study to the A to Z study um, called the Diet Fit Studies. And so he was planning to um, do a bigger study in men and women with 600 people. And uh, I, I, I wrote him that I would love to join the group and look at the epigenetics of, um, of people and specifically the, the DNA methylation 
Why I propose DNA methylation? Because we have an accurate test to measure DNA methylation um, at the single nucleotide level. Uh, so DNA methylation is the best modification to study if you want to measure a difference between, uh, for example, uh, pre and post diet, whereas histone modifications are not very quantitative. So I, uh, I, did, I made this proposal and when I woke up the next day, I, uh, Christopher told me, ah, yes, join our group. Can I contact your referees? And I was like, wow, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't expect that. And so, um, and for me, it was a big life-changing event because I had been eight years in Austria at that time. I, 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 I was loving living there. I, I had uh, learned the language. I can speak German. I, it was also, I was attached to, to the, but, 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 Sometimes in life you you have to shake it up. So <laughs> I, <laughs> this is what actually a friend of mine told me, and um, and then I yes. Yeah, so now I'm uh, I'm uh, looking at DNA methylation uh, before and after um, uh, a lifestyle intervention, specifically um, uh, a low carb or a low fat diet that um, the participants of the new study, the diet fit study by Professor Christopher Gardner uh, are following for one year. Um, and uh, the trial has been already completed, uh, but there are many groups at Stanford uh, um, looking at different data, uh, microbiomics, uh, uh, metabolomics, and I am so lucky to lead the, the epigenetic analysis and also some genetic analysis coming next. Oh, that's, that's so exciting. exciting. The, um... The, the low fat and low carb diet, how, uh, how low is it on either side or what are, what, what are they uh, going for with those? Yeah, the study design of the diet fit study is unique. Um, so uh, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was um, a limbo phase initial limbo phase called the limbo because people were encouraged to go as low as they could with carbohydrates or fat. The target was 20 grams of carbohydrates or for the low ca uh, carb uh, group and 20 grams of, fat, of fats for the low fat group. And of course, it's a very hard target to reach, right? So most people deviated from that, but this was by design because then after three months, people were encouraged to titrate back carbs or fats up to a level that was considered sustainable for life. And the, the diet fit study got many critics for this reason because uh, uh, many people for in the, in the low carb or low fat uh, space felt why did you encourage people to titrate back in this way? You 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 um, uh, you miss you missed potential benefits of either diets, and I agree with that. I just comment and reply. I, I know why Christopher designed the study like the uh, like that, and um, it's because uh, it's there is always a trade off to making study that is more 
uh, impactful for public health, something that is more likely, you know, for the diet is more likely most people will actually do in real life. And this was the diet fish study or a study that is more uh, targeted to answer a scientific question. Is low carb or low fat better for these outcomes? And of course, being a molecular biologist, I would have preferred to force people to eat just 20 <laughs> grams of carbohydrates or fat for one year. That, ha that will make me the happiest because I can measure uh, better and stronger signals. So no questions. I, <laughs> I get it. I get it. But I also understand, you know, uh, the other perspective. And, uh, and so I really appreciate the opportunity to um, have learned all these uh, uh, difficult and uh, facets of, uh, of clinical research. It's not as simple. So I come from a background of being a molecular biologist and uh, being able to isolate factors. So, so at the beginning, I thought, okay, this is going to be complicated. But that's the beauty also of clinical research. Yeah, yeah. At least you're able to do it in humans, and you kind of get what you get. What um, what methylation signals are you going to be looking at with your with the DNA methylation? Are you going to be using standard clocks or ones that you look at yourself? And maybe maybe back up a little bit and just uh, if you could introduce our audience or, or refresh our audience on uh, DNA methylation clocks. Okay, yes, sure. I, um, I will uh, first describe the different projects we are doing. And I'm happy actually to have the opportunity to talk about that because in this way, perhaps I can, uh, um, some listeners that want to collaborate on these data sets can uh, reach out to me um, because I already did um, uh, many analyses. So we already have a, a ton of epigenetic data. Um, uh, so um, there are different projects uh, I'm doing. The first um, that we already have data, it's... Um, about just comparing the DNA methylation before and after the diet on the two different diets. And we see remarkable difference. So the genes that are turned on in, uh, on the low-carb diet or low-fat diet are completely different from each other. There is little overlap. Uh, there are some usual suspects. For example, we see that on the low-carb diet, enzymes that are required for, uh, for, uh, for fat breakdown are turned on because there is more fat. And, uh, but also different pathways that are turned on or off in the, in, in the different diets. Um, uh, uh, for example, low-carb, um, uh, there, there, there is actually the upregulation the up of some immune pathways, uh, especially um, uh, related to natural killer cells, um, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the pathways. And then on the low-fat diet, there are some cancer-protective genes that were turned on, uh, especially regarding to colon cancer. Anyway, these are just examples. So there is the DNA methylation analysis, just comparing the two diets and understanding which genes are turned on or off. Uh, and this is an important part of uh, clinical epigenetics, because, for example, you, might, you may uh, prescribe dietary intervention that is upregulated some genes more than another, depending on your outcome. One example is also 
we know, for example, the ketogenic diet is used sometimes to treat drug-resistant epilepsy. And from an epigenetic point of view, we see that on a ketogenic diet, there is an upregulation of inhibitory pathways in the brain and downregulation of the excitatory pathways. So this is an example to say, okay, we know that this is happening behind the scenes of gene expression, and this makes sense. So it's this is what the first project I'm working on. And then the second project and, uh, and uh, um, that we initiated that then was killed uh, by COVID. And I hope that we can uh, bring this back. So I'm happy to uh, talk now um, uh, virtually uh, and uh, to uh, Christopher Gardner and then uh, Professor Steve Borbat. So we uh, connected uh, together before COVID uh, because Steve, uh, Steve Orvat um, is the professor who developed the epigenetic clocks that I will explain now. Um, and uh, he, um, he uh, developed um, uh, in 2019 a new clock that was uh, predicting uh, um, really biological age and uh, mortality. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, I connected with Steve and Christopher to test the this clock that is called the Green Age because it's yes. very more <laughs> the clock um, in the diet fish study. Uh, we had the, all the plan, uh, um, uh, um, so made made these plans, and uh, we also involved the University of Vienna, Professor Karl-Heinz Wagner. I also say hi to him. But anyway, we were we had this plan, and then uh, this is on the the backlog. But I I hope that we will uh, also assume um, that plan. Uh, so, what are epigenetic clocks? Um, so because uh, we, we have learned that our environment, our lifestyle can change our epigenetics. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, the, and we can measure DNA methylation so, uh, on many sites. Um, it turns out that when we measure the DNA methylation of thousand sites in our genome, we get a readout of the true age of our cells and tissues, which is called biological age and can deviate from our chronological age. So, for example, we can be 40 years old, but then have a biological age that is 30 or 50. Um, uh, biological age is measured by this, uh, the, the, the level of DNA methylation at different sites in our genome. And uh, there are many epigenetic clocks that different, differ from each other depending on uh, which sites uh, uh, they measure, how many uh, sites, and whether the algorithm that were used to train these, uh, these uh, clock, clocks through machine learning were trained against uh, uh, to predict uh, by uh, chronological age, so or biological age, which is, uh, for example, um, uh, outcomes of phenotypes of aging, mortality, cancer, for example, or 
some blood lipids and markers that we know are associated with metabolic disease. So usually the, the, the clocks that were trained to uh, predict biological, uh, chronological age are, co are called first generation clocks. And the one that are trained um, to predict uh, more uh, um, uh, phenotypes of aging and biological age are, are, are called uh, second generation clocks. And um, uh, the first generation clock that is more uh, shows the highest um, uh, correlation with chronological age is the Harvard clock 2013. And then uh, um, there are uh, a couple of uh, second generation clocks uh, like um, the Fino Age uh, by Morgan Levine and the, the Green Age um, by Professor Steve Orvat, the one that we hope we are going to use. So these second generation clocks might be better to, uh, uh, to look at uh, before and after uh, so the, the changing in uh, in uh, biological age before and after intervention because this clock correlate with the marker that change uh, like can be uh, blood uh, markers or uh, um, phenotypic uh, aging whereas uh, the chronological age clock um, like um, uh, of, of the first generation like the the Horvath clock 2013 might be better to uh, for uh, uh, the prediction of forensic age, um, for example, for uh, the, the, the forensic sample, for example, if you if we find if you find a DNA sample and uh, um, you need to know how how old was uh, uh, the person at that time, and this this actually there was a, a legal case where I, I believe that. Um, uh, determining the age of the person was important to determine the sentence because uh, if that person was uh, um, uh, younger than 18 years old, the the the, the punish the the penalty would have been different, right? Uh -huh. So you know, uh, it, and then for forensic purpose, you want to have a clock that predicts better chronologically. It doesn't change depending on whether the uh, that person had uh, eggs or uh, or uh, or muffin for breakfast all right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> how did how did the uh, dna methylation clocks compare with you mentioned some other ones but the like the glycination clocks or the uh inflammation clocks we we're seeing more and more type of biological clocks coming uh is uh DNA methylation is obviously your area of interest. Is that going to be the most important one, you think? Or are they yeah, all looking at different uh, things? These are very interesting questions. So I also teach a, a class at Stanford uh, called Longing for Longevity from Biology to Biohacking. And I, I, I teach these topics uh, together with uh, Madalena Adorno. She's the CEO of a company that is developing xenoblockers for senescent cells. And that can be also another marker of aging. So um, for your questions, as you pointed out, biological age is, uh, is everything and nothing. So a biological age could be just a biological readout of living, 
right? So it, it encompasses many things. Epigenetics is one of the clock that we use to measure biological age. There are molecular clocks like the one you are mentioning. It's an epigenetic age or a um, glycan age. Um, uh, and there, there are telomere-based clocks, and then there is also an immune age based on gene expression of our immune cells, and many more will come. But then there are functional clocks based on the simple blood markers. You can get your uh, blood work done, and because many of these blood markers correlate with biological age, you, you can have a functional clock that Many clinicians are actually starting to use in their, in their clinic just to estimate the biological age. And then there are even digital clocks, like people based on the face recognition. Of course, uh, you know, there is an age of, of the skin that is uh, visible. So this is just to be, make the big picture. Biological age is a, is a new concept that is used to define how the environment uh, uh, can affect the, the aging of our tissues and cells, but it's a, a composite metric because my, my skin may be older than my liver if I like to sunbathe uh, every day, but I have a healthy diet, right? So, and so to your point, um, the, there is not a better, a best clock. A glycan age, for example, I think it's, uh, it will be very relevant uh, as a signal of uh, uh, probably more uh, glucose metabolism problems, right? Uh, there are different signals of aging. And uh, um, for example, one, I think one interesting and future directions that uh, biological clock should address is that uh, I've, and this is only anecdotal, but there are many athletes that complain that they are, when they take a, a, an epigenetic clock measurement, they look older than they are. And yet they are, you know, supposed to do the right things. And uh, I, I, I would love to test this hypothesis. I, I, I don't know why, but it can be that training, we know, um, uh, exercise does uh, 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 um, cause many epigenetic changes, um, and uh, and some of them are actually they turn on inflammatory genes in the short term and cytokines, and these inflammatory genes and cytokines are important to mediate the adaptive response to exercise that is actually good for us, that at the end, uh, by activating these stress pathways, our cells become stronger. And so it could also be that the epigenetic locks are capturing that inflammation signal. Right? I'm not, I'm just saying, you know, that we will need to understand which signals are captured by which clock and so that we really can say, can uh, more than say we are estimating biological age, we are estimating these component of biological age is more relevant for you. Yeah, yeah. So, so following up on that, um, now that we see biological clocks and DNA methylation clocks 
investigators are starting to see how lifestyle can affect the clocks like you're doing. And also, I think Kara Fitzgerald just published a nice study on that, where, where they showed a reversal of biological age, at least by one, one clock. I think it was Steve Horvath's clock. Then the question becomes, um, what evidence do we have that reversing biological age is manifested through a, a biological clock affects outcome and survival? I mean, is it just like getting a Botox injection and it'll make <laughs> you look younger, but it doesn't really change your, your outcome necessarily? I, uh, I, well, I guess uh, we have David Sinclair's work with the, with the mice and the Yamanaka factors with OSK winding back supposedly the uh, epigenetics on those to decrease age-related vision in his uh, science paper this year. So is is that valid, do you think, or, or do you know any other evidence of that? Yeah, so this is an important question. And no, we don't have answers. Actually, um, uh, even Steve Orvat uh, war, uh, uh, is, uh, is cautious uh, about, you know, the, the, actually what is the clinical uh, utility now of, uh, of epigenetic clocks. I think that to establish that utility, we need more studies like the ones uh, by Cara Fitzgerald. So you mentioned she um, she's a colleague, and uh, um, um, uh, that uh, she she demonstrated that after a lifestyle intervention, um, uh, um, there was a, a, re a reversal of biological age and some relevant clinical improvement in clinical outcomes. Right, so then we can start to, to, to demonstrate that there is a, an association between actually improving clinical outcomes and, and biological age. And the more we build this evidence, the more we can also use uh, biological age as a, a, a surrogate marker for, for aging, which is very useful because in a, in a, we can't run uh, interventions for years uh, to, uh, <laughs> to wait that people are, are getting older. And for the second question that you um, you were asking about uh, the experiments done by David Sinclair uh, with the epigenetic reprogramming, and just to give a refresher to your uh, um, audience, uh, we can actually um, uh, reprogram uh, cells uh, to um, uh, de-differentiate from, uh, for example, uh, hair cells to uh, embryonic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells, so is iPSCs actually, um, uh, um, is uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, iPSCs um, can become any type of cells because they don't have the epigenetic marks to extract the, the, the genes on, on which genes should be turned on or off. So they have a, a, a ton of potential. So this is an epigenetic process and we can add a cocktail of, uh, of uh, a transcription factor that revert a, a, a cell into iPSCs and then this cell can become any type of cell. And there is evidence that... Uh, when we do that, there is a rejuvenate the, the biological clock goes back. For most clocks, 
actually not all the one, but anyway, this is complicated, but most clock goes back. Um, and, uh, and David Sinclair even showed that in vivo, in mice, um, when you transiently treat uh, uh, the, the uh, optic nerve uh, cells that, the, um, uh, of, um, of mice that had uh, optic nerve damage, with this uh, uh, transcription factor, they're called the Yamanaka factor, that we program the epigenome, then you have actually an epigenetic rejuvenation. So this is uh, the first uh, step to, uh, to uh, show this, but we don't know what this will play out in, uh, in uh, humans, right? For which outcomes, because these were either aged mice or mice with a, with a, uh, an optic nerve damage. Um, so to get back to your question, I think uh, we still, uh, there is a ton to do to make um, biological age, um, you know, clinically useful. Uh, but in the meantime, I think uh, including these clocks in lifestyle intervention can interventions can uh, first of all help this research um, uh, further so I encourage all the clinicians to do that um, and then can help us um, understand which mechanisms of aging are more relevant for which uh, the, the um, desired outcome of a, for a lifestyle intervention. So, and it's exciting also for the participants. I am collaborating with some doctors, for example, that are testing biological age um, uh, while they are prescribing an intermittent fasting um, uh, um, uh, intervention. And uh, I am uh, um, editing a special topic for Frontier Genetics with Morgan uh, Levine and uh, Vittorio Sebastiano uh, at Stanford University, um, uh, Aging Clocks in uh, Longevity Medicine. I'm mentioning this because uh, I'm sure there are many clinicians and uh, scientists in your audience and I we would love uh, we would love to um, get your submission I think that the topic is running for um, uh, other six months so uh, don't wait too long oh great would uh, would you like us to put your email in the uh, in the show notes to, for them to contact yes, you yes is that, yes is that okay yes, and we'll have yes, your website sure. also on there yes or, or yeah and yeah, if you're looking for collaborators, in addition to scientific collaborators, are you looking for uh, patient or, or lay people, participant collaborators also, or mainly right now just scientific uh, collaborators? For, uh, for now, just scientific collaborators, just because we probably, when, once we have, uh, you know, a new study, then, uh, then yes, I will, uh, um, yes, I will uh, let you know. And if you can help me perhaps recruit people, yes. But for now, we have a ton of data and we have the luxury of sitting on, uh, on a gold mine and having too many things to do. So um, we, we found a, a collaborator uh, at Imperial College London recently to look at some of the epigenetic data and with the metabolomics. But uh, just, uh, yes, uh, the, we have, we have uh, done whole genome bisulfate sequencing on the biggest losers from the study. And then we are, we are also looking at some epigenetic biomarkers of diabetes and whether they change after the intervention. We have the data 
it just like prioritizing which project goes first is difficult because in the meantime there are also other studies uh, that we are working on uh, um, for example testing a ketogenic diet and comparing that with a um, with a, a low carb mediterranean diet so of course there are too many projects to work on and i also need to teach <laughs> well, <laughs> so i only have one life <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you also have some collaborator that can clone me that's <laughs> also another very useful thing but that's so exciting. So many, so many fascinating projects. In the in the last couple of minutes, um, maybe you could tell us with your with your knowledge of epigenetics and genomics and high fat, high carb, low fat, low carb diets. What what lifestyle choices have you made in, in your own life as far as diet or exercise or supplements and those sorts of things? Yes, I am happy to share that, and I think I already shared the, the first part of the story. So uh, I think the biggest change was trying the low-carb diet. Um, and since then, I, I, I never went back. So it's more uh, now, more than 10 years, 13 years. Um, uh, for a, a low-carb diet, there are many ways of doing a low-carb diet, right? Um, but I, I just mean really eating whole foods. And this, uh, this is already low carb because if you are eliminating uh, uh, refined carbohydrates, pasta, br uh, bread, pizza, and refined carbohydrates, you are doing a low carb diet. So, and I think this uh, is a common ground and everyone, everyone can agree on that, whether they, you are vegan, plant based, or, and this is already low carb. And I think this is the big, the biggest improvement that people can see in their in their diet i'm also um in within low carb i'm choosing more low carb vegetables so that are those that usually grow uh, above ground um and the reason for that is that they tend to be more nutrient dense compared to the calories and more rich in fibers than, for example, tubers. So, and, um, uh, and then uh, um, protein from a variety of sources, the vegetables, the, of course, and uh, fish, eggs. I prefer fish to meat. I have little meat just because I was born and raised in uh, South Italy. So I, I, it's, it's my taste. It's, it's a preference. And then, um, and I think that this is also important. There is not one way, for example, I am actually in ketosis and I, but I, I never track myself. I, I measured my ketones, um, a couple of times wh while I was teaching a class at Stanford on the ketogenic diet and I was in ketosis, but I was not even trying to do that. And it's not a standard keto diet, like the one they prescribe you eat butter, meat, nothing of that, right? It's just eating vegetables, local vegetables, fish, or olive oil, avocado. And uh, it's, uh, th th this is important uh, because there are many ways of doing a diet. There are wrong ways of doing any diet. A keto diet, a vegan diet, there are wrong ways of doing all those diets. So I don't like polarization. This is good or this is bad. It depends. There are many ways to, um, to do that. So this is my first uh, um, probably uh, lifestyle habit. And I feel freedom i don't count calorie i don't track anything it's for me effortless and enjoyable to have this diet 
So another message I think is important is that what is sustainable is also individual. My diet probably will not appeal for most people, but I truly enjoy it and I will never change it. So telling this is unsustainable uh, and uh, I think is wrong because we are eliminating options for people. We are deciding upfront what what is sustainable for people. We want to give people options. We don't want to (laughs) eliminate options for people. So, and then um, the second is exercise. So I'm big on exercise, but even in that space, I'm a, I'm a minimalist. I I do the most difficult exercise, but a few of uh, I, I spend little time on those exercises, and I build my exercise in my routine. For example, I do pull-ups while I'm preparing my breakfast. And that's one day. And then the other day, I do push-ups and the combination while I prepare dinner. And then on the cup, couple of days, I go to the Stanford gym. I love that gym. And I do uh, things that I can't do at home, like uh, deadlifts and squats. And I love that. But it's really like two or three exercises. And I define myself as a lazy uh, person because I don't get much other activity, right? Other than that, I don't run, I don't uh, go. I I would love to do that, but I only have so uh, little time. So it's so possible. It's possible. You know, you don't need. I I am. I, I love taking care. Uh, of my body and I enjoy the the food I eat and I think it's possible for everybody. Uh, uh, any supplements that you'd like to share? Um, I, I I do take uh, vitamin D when I can't be outside um, in the sun and sometimes some magnesium. I have I'm also minimalist with the supplements. I I take omega threes, magnesium. Uh, potassium because I'm uh, deficient and uh, vitamin D as a staples. Um, and, uh, most people are also deficient uh, on those minerals. I tested my my potassium, so I know that uh, it's um, uh, it's a little low. And uh, uh, also, I use it a little bit for uh, preventing uh, stones. And perhaps you you can you can say something about that because my physician told me that. Um, yes, I have a history, family history, and uh, potassium citrate uh, seems to help also with that. So, but so far I've been taking this a, a long time, and I I feel great. Um, and um, yeah, omega threes are uh, you know I eat fish, uh, but uh, we just eat so um, the ratio omega six and omega threes should be um, balanced in our body and. Uh, most of us eat too many omega-6s. Uh, I also, although I, I don't eat a processed uh, diet and omega-6s are found in vegetable oils, um, uh, which are prevalent in processed food because they are cheap and processed food wants to make money on it. Um, uh, but I also eat nuts, a lot of nuts, and nuts are high in omega-6s. So I'm trying to balance um, my omega-6s and omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And I'm going to um, 
any information you send me uh, about new studies and uh, desire for collaborators, we'll share with, uh, with all our audience here and keep them in the loop. But uh, once again, thanks so much for all the uh, sharing all the exciting work you're doing. I don't know how you, how you choose between such, such fascinating projects, but it was, it was wonderful to have you on the show, Lucia. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And just I want to mention that I also have another passion sharing my lectures on uh, on YouTube started recently. Um, I just need a, a signal from from people. If they like it, I will do more of that and sacrifice some weekends for that. But if not, <laughs> I may just uh, take my weekend off. So if you want to check out my YouTube channel and give me um, a like or a subscription, that's appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, we'll put the links to the YouTube channel in there. And I, I've checked it out. They're great, great presentations. Very worth it. I highly recommend it. But thanks again, Lucia, and uh, look forward to chatting with you again on the show. Thank you. Thank you for letting me. No, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you have seen here. If you find this to be of value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we'll hope to see you next time.